Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. Amen. Thank you, Darren. If you will, join me in the pastoral prayer. Oh, Jesus, you are the one who loves us. You have freed us from our sins by your blood. You have made us a kingdom, priests to our God, the Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Father, we praise you. You are mighty to save. We thank you for sending your one and only son to make salvation possible through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus, we praise you as our risen king who ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for being our high priest to whom we can come for help, for mercy, in time of need. And we know that you hear us, you desire for us to come to you, and you love to pour out your mercy on us and your grace. We come before you today and we ask for your forgiveness for our sin. We confess that we have not lived according to your will and we have sought our own will more than your own. We confess, Lord, that we often desire to be the God of our own lives, and we admit that we know that that's sin. Lord, we thank you for your promise to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ. We thank you that it is your good pleasure to conform us into his image. We thank you that you remind us by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us that we are dead to sin and raised as new creations. We lift before you now, Lord, those who are sick and hurting. We ask for your mercy. Lord, would you bring your healing? We ask that you would show your mercy today by saving the lost and and turning around the believer who has been running from you and encourage the one who is burned out and, and strengthen the one who is weak. Jesus, may your resurrection not only remind us that one day we will be glorified and completely dwelling in your presence, but right now you give us hope for today. Lord, we ask that you would move in a mighty way in your spirit, that you would anchor that truth deep into our lives, that we know because of the work that you accomplished, we are truly dead to sin and alive to you. We lift up this morning Allegheny Community Church. We ask that you grant their ministry success. Lord, our very own Dan Culver is there preaching the good news this morning, and we ask that you would give him boldness that you would be with him as he proclaims the resurrected Christ and that many would hear and come to know you. I ask for your mercy on him as he brings the word, Lord, because his mother's in her last hours. I pray that he can rest knowing that she knows the resurrected king. Lord, we come to you today, all ages, seeking to see your glory. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and faith to apply what you show us in your word today. Help me to faithfully proclaim your word so that you, Jesus, increase and I decrease. You alone are our living hope. We have no other hope. In your precious and holy and resurrected name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, kiddos, you are released. The rest of you, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one like this in the seat around you or in front of you, or you can come get this one. And um, I want you in the Word with me. 
If you don't have a Bible at all, you can have that one uh, from us. We would love for you to have the word in your hands. Well, Paul's already stolen my uh, introductory line, but I wrote it down, so I'm going to say it again anyways. Good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Day. I just want to begin this morning by reading from Luke. I know you just turned to Romans, but I was in Luke for a long time, and we're going to read it. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. I want you to picture in your mind what's happening in Luke 23. Now, there was a, na- a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a council, a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action on the cross, is what he's referring to there. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and then he he took it down and he wrapped it in linen, a linen shroud and laid Jesus in the tomb, in a, a tomb of cut stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come to him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. And they'd found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Out of darkness we see light. We see the most terrible thing on Friday. We see mourning on Saturday. And then we see he is not here. He is risen. This moment in history sets off this beautiful chain reaction where everything from that moment changes. The one who was thought to be dead, he bursts forth, as we just sang, he bursts forth from the grave showing that he has victory over death. And the death that started in the Garden of Eden way back in the first three chapters of the Bible, um, we see it starts to be overturned at that moment. Sin starts crashing down like dominoes because the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings forth new life. You see, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it, it sets off this chain reaction in our lives also. When we come to the knowledge of him, when we understand who he is and what he's done, it sets our feet on ground that's solid. We were on shaky ground before, but now he, he shows us the truth and what true life looks like. The one that reminds us of who we are in Jesus, that our sins are paid for and that we have been redeemed the one that sets us free, not later, right now. We are set free. He says you're no longer slaves to sin. That makes us, he makes us new creations. He gives us new hearts. The one that gives us a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that believers will receive all that God promised. So this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection promise, the process of that promise, and the power of that promise. So we'll begin with the promise. What does he promise us? Look at the text, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. Right off the bat, we're told that this promise is for good. 
Now, we could sit around and we could argue about what is good, um, what does that mean, Uh, we could disagree on what is good, but I think we can all agree in here that we like good. Good is good, right? We might not disagree, we might not agree on what that is, but I like things that are good. I don't think we're going to argue about that so far. Now, the word good should transport our minds immediately back to Genesis 1. We should, I mean, if you've, if you've never read the Bible and you've only gotten so far as the first page in your daily or yearly read through the Bible reading plan, you've only made it through chapter one, you know, and we've all been there. I'm going to read the Bible this year and I made it to chapter one. If you've only done that, you know, it says God saw that it was good. We see that over and over. Every day of creation, it is good. It is good. It is good. And why was it good? It's because when he was creating, everything was created perfectly. There was no problem. Zero corruption. Zero sin. Zero death. It was good. All things were working together to display God's beauty perfectly glory and uh, his, his, the relationship with, with the Lord between humanity and God. It was, he gets to the very end and he says it's very good because humanity was representing God perfectly. But sin enters in the scene. If you've read to day two in your Bible reading plan, we see, well, we messed it up. I'm gonna stop reading because it's already bad news. It enters the scene, and what was good is shattered. And we see in Romans 8, 20, that it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see right there in Romans, I'm going to keep reading, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So we have seen in creation um, the effects of sin. In the relationship between God and man, we have seen that it is broken. We went from beauty in day one through six to corruption as soon as we fell. From beauty to darkness. We went from perfection to chaos. But here in Romans, we get here and we start reading and it says, God, all things are going to work together for good. He's bringing it back to how he created it in the beginning. And if we believe that he is good and we believe that he is perfect, then we have to believe whatever this purpose, whatever this good is, is good. We want that thing. And we must understand that the the good that comes to us, the good that he is promising, doesn't come because of fate. It doesn't come because of good luck or because you're morally superior to others. It's ascribed to God's good and perfect purpose. He purposes good for us. And we'll get to what that purpose is momentarily, but for now, we're just agreeing that God is promising good. Now we'll look at the scope of what affects this promise. Look back at the text, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Okay, so everything, he says, is working together for good. In the context of Romans 8, what's working together for good is not um, uh, roses and tulips. It's, It's something like suffering and trials. He's saying all of these things, all of the bad things are even working toward the good that God has purposed. We see in verse 18 in Romans 8, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. We see in verse 23, and not only the creation, but but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the Spirit groan 
inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We know that our backs hurt, our knees hurt. We know there's pain. We know there's trials. We know that there's bad things that happen in the world. We see all of these things. And God is saying everything is working toward his good. The most clear example of suffering working toward good is the cross of Jesus Christ. He suffered a far greater suffering than we could ever imagine for our good. We see in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The cross was the only way that you and I could become the offspring of God. The only way that our sins could be paid for. The only way we could be restored into a right, good relationship with God. This is why the angels say at the tomb on Easter morning in Luke 24. I should have read the rest of that verse for you, but I didn't. Luke 24, he's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He's saying it it was necessary for suffering to bring forth life, for death to bring forth life. It was necessary for this to happen. But you might be thinking, okay, certainly not everything, right? Right? There's some really bad, dark stuff that happens in the world, right? Like everything couldn't be working toward good. There's horrible stuff that happens in this life. Hear me. The text does not say everything is good. It doesn't say that all of these things are good. Evil is very real. And it, it seeks to hinder your eyes from looking to Jesus Christ, the Savior. It desires nothing more than for you to doubt the goodness of God so that you see those bad things and you say, he cannot be good. Just as Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He can't be good. He's restricting you. He's a liar He's a deceiver. But the text does tell us that God is using all of those things for good. God is using the schemes of Satan. He's using all of the bad things that he is bringing into your life to fulfill his perfect and good plan. Just as Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, who wanted to kill him, who send him off into a foreign land, and Joseph comes back and says, you meant this all for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in God's great and awesome power, we can look to the world around us and know that he can use anything for good. He's perfect knowledge. He is working all things out to fulfill the redemption of his people, to make you and me look like Jesus. So to whom does God give this promise? Look at the text again, verse 28. We'll get out of verse 28 eventually. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So first we see that the promise is for those who love God. Those who love God are those who follow him and follow his commands. John says this very clearly. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We know that we love God when we obey him. We see in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and make myself visible to him. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And who are those who love God? They're the ones we see who are called according to his purpose. And this calling is very clearly and very plainly presented all throughout the New Testament that this is the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that we are called is by hearing the good news of the resurrected Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us into a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." So the people who receive the good God has purposed are those who love him and are called according to his purpose, who have heard the good news, who receive the the grace of Jesus Christ and live out his calling, which leads us to the process. How does all of that happen? Look at verses 28, or sorry, 29. I was so stuck in verse 28, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see this chain reaction of good happening. This process, it's initiated way before the foundations of the earth. God had this plan already, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And we know the word here, foreknew, it could easily mean to know before. We could just flip it around, know before. But in the personal nature of what's happening in this verse, and God is talking about his people, it more than likely means to love before. He loved us beforehand. So now we're starting to see this beautiful picture of the story of redemption, of God's plan to use all things for the good of those who love him before the foundations of the world, those whom he loves, his bride, his children, his people. And his purpose is seen in how he predestines them. How does, what does that even mean, predestined? It simply means to decide beforehand. And what does he decide beforehand? Look at the text, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why is that so good? Why would the Father move heaven and earth to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ? Because he's good. Because he is the very definition of good. He is the definition of righteous. He is the definition of purchase. And it's God's perfect pleasure to make us look like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of what he accomplished in redemption. Making us look like the son. When we go back to creation and he created humanity and he said it is very good. The reason was was because we were created perfectly in his image. We looked like Jesus. And he is moving heaven and earth to make us look like Jesus. 
The Father desires to remove the sin in your life that's plaguing you, the sin that is dragging you down, the sin that promises you all of these good things, and it's all empty holes that could give you nothing but death, it says in the Word. He wants to move from you everything that brought death and suffering and make you look like Jesus. And the process that's started from before the foundations of the world and all the good that's working throughout history to make God's people look like Jesus is put into effect at the resurrection. So first, Jesus, it says that he would become the firstborn among many brothers. That's talking about his resurrection. His resurrection reveals the good purpose that God has for us. Jesus becomes the firstborn of the dead. It doesn't mean he was born again through his mother's womb. He's the one who inherits all things. The one who takes the throne as the rightful king. But then he says, but my brothers and sisters will reign with me forever. We see in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We see in Revelation, it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And we see in verse 34 in Romans 8, it says, Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Since Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, since he's resurrected and glorified, he now is in heaven interceding for you and for me. His, his resurrection and is how we are called. He declared innocent, how we are made holy. He is sending us his spirit to declare this good news to us. He says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. No matter how far away you seem to be, he says, I can save to the uttermost. You cannot be too far away from me. I am living to make intercession for you. I'm calling you to myself. Repent and follow me, he says. We don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize. So we could say, okay, that sounds really good, but you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the weaknesses that I have. And we say, he says, yes, I do. I know what is going on. I am the perfect high priest. I put on flesh. I suffered in every way that you have suffered and are suffering and will suffer. And I died for you so that you could come to me. Things for our good. He had a plan in eternity past to make us look like Jesus. And to do that, he sends Jesus, he puts on flesh himself to die for your sin so that you can have a new heart and follow him. He raised Jesus from the grave. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you so that you can, and he promises, look like him. There's great power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in verse 11 in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
I think so often we say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that the cross is empty. I believe that the, that the tomb is empty, but I don't believe, or at least I live like I don't believe that he has that same power to overcome sin and death in my own life. I get so bogged down by the, the worries and the, the anxieties and the sin in this life. And I think, well, I'm glad. And one day, eventually, he's going to deliver me from those things. But he's saying, I'm doing that right now. The same power that raised me from the dead, if you believe that, is in you. And he's, he's telling you that in his word. He will make you look like the sun. And once Jesus is resurrected, he doesn't say, good luck. See you on the other side. I'm out of here. He says, I have set off a chain reaction in your life. Those who I predestined, I'm, I'm going to call you. And those who I call, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to make you innocent. And those who I make innocent, I'm going to glorify you. Jesus calls. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying. This is Paul, both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now the first thing he does when he's raised, he, he goes and proclaims the good news. He goes and preaches the kingdom of God to his disciples. Immediately on the road to Emmaus is proclaiming he's the resurrected Christ. He reminds them of what he's been doing from all eternity past. Then he tells them, you go and you go tell people now. You have seen me, you're my witnesses. You take that good news to the ends of the earth. He tells them, you are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. He means the Holy Spirit. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. But you'll receive power, we see in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. Paul picks this up in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call upon him if they haven't believed and how are they to believe if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So Jesus ascends and then he sends us the Holy Spirit and he says, you go and you tell people the good news that I am risen. The first way he does that, he does it through the preaching of the word. Paul says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance. Paul says, this is the most important thing I told you, uh, what I received, that Christ died for your sin according to the scripture. And he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. You are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ today. Do not harden your heart this morning. Follow Jesus. He alone is your help. He alone is your good in this life and the life to come. But if you hear the good news, you hear the gospel, and you reject Jesus as Savior, there is no good promise for you. Just for a second, look at verse 28 again, just in case you forgot it. And we know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, 
We'll just let me reread that. For those who love God, all things work together for good. He, there's no promise for good there for those who reject Him and His Savior. The Lord will suppress the truth. You've been shown the truth. You're being told the truth. And if you suppress that, what comes is the wrath of God. But if you turn to Jesus, his promise is for your good. He says, I'm for your, I'm, I'm going to make you perfect. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to rule with you. It's for your good. None are too far gone. He says, I can save to the uttermost. Just turn to me. You who are weary and burdened, come to me. My, my burden is light. I will give you rest. And church, you are how the resurrected Christ calls his people. He's chosen the weak. Those of us who are weak and we say I've got nothing to offer. He goes, I know. I'll use you. Perfect. Because you're going to have to rely on me. I'm the resurrected Christ. You're not the answer. You don't go give them. You give them the answer. You tell them it's me. You tell others of Jesus. You tell them of the cross that paid for their sin. You tell them of the resurrection that gives them new life. You are not their hope. Jesus is. You show them the gospel. You say, look, I was a complete jerk, and I still kind of am, but Jesus is making me look like him, right? Like, I am not the answer. You show them. I'm, I'm a new creation. I'm less jerk than I was yesterday. Some days I take two steps back, but we get the, we get the rhythm. And not only does Jesus call to himself after the resurrection, he says, I'm going to justify you. Very early on in the book of Romans, Paul reveals that all have sinned, he says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person, all are guilty. Sin has created this guilty verdict in the court of heaven across the board. There's no one that's innocent, he says. The only just thing for God to do for sin is to with open judgment of it, with death and hell. But the call of salvation says that Jesus lived perfectly. He died to pay for your sin, taking your punishment, taking what you deserved, and he gives you instead righteousness. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, the perfect innocent lamb, so that in Jesus, you might receive the righteousness of God. Instead of hearing guilty, you hear innocent, paid for, redeemed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made perfect by his grace as a gift. He gives it to you. You don't earn it. You don't, have, uh, you don't pay him a retainer. He gives it to you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's just a fancy word that means payment for sin by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over all of the garbage in your life to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By faith, we receive or we acknowledge that we have zero righteousness. We acknowledge the grace of God is a gift. It's not something I've earned. 
We acknowledge we're redeemed, we're bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that Jesus became the payment for our sin. We acknowledge in faith that Jesus alone justifies us, and Jesus alone is the one who justifies us. You don't come to the Lord on judgment day and say, I went to church on Easter. You don't come to the Lord and say, I preached uh, on Easter Sunday, or I went to church every day of my life. You do not say, I was a really good person. I gave all of this stuff to the poor. You You don't say that because all you will hear is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What if you acknowledge you're poor in spirit? You acknowledge, I have zero righteousness of my own. I'm incapable of mustering up even the faith to believe that you're a sinner who deserves hell. But you say, but God, you promise. You promise you would, you would pay for my sin. You're faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You believe that the blood of Jesus washes you clean, that he justifies you, that he satisfies the wrath of God against your sin, that you hear when you come into judgment day, you are going to hear the resurrected Christ who intercedes for you say, mine, they're mine. I paid for them. I redeemed them. I forgave them. They're innocent. Do you understand the remedy, the precious remedy Christ applies to your sin-sick soul? And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. But not only does Jesus call by the power of his spirit through his church, not only does he cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we're innocent before the Lord, he glorifies us. To be glorified means to be made perfect like Jesus is perfect. There will be a day when all sin, when all death is eradicated from the earth and and we will have a new heavens and a new earth and we'll have new bodies. We'll have glorified bodies that are not affected by sin, not affected by death. They're eternal, they're perfect. There's no more pain, there's no more backaches, there's no more surgeries, there's no more high blood pressure or anxiety or depression or sorrow or grief. There's only perfection, there's only good. That day is coming But not just later. It's coming today. Today you get the benefits of Christ's resurrection. We're being sanctified now. Addictions are being removed now. Anger is being abated now. Pride is being humbled today. Greed is being turned into generosity. Impatience is being turned into patience. Hate is being turned into love. Selfishness is being turned into selflessness. Because we're getting, we're looking like Jesus. Like he's making us look like Jesus. He's promised that for you. You died with him and you've been resurrected with him. The good he promises is not only after death. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we have, we've seen the promise, it's for good. We've seen the process that he is working all of this stuff out so that we look like Jesus. He's using our trials and he's using our suffering and he's even using good stuff to show us his love and remind us that we don't need all of that sinful stuff. And we see in the rest of the chapter the power of God's purpose. Look at verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus' resurrection reveals the power of God over doubt in your life. 
if God has determined from before the foundations of the world to bring you into his kingdom, he, if he has obviously shown you that he is for you and he's called you, he's allowed you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's made a way for your sin to be paid for and forgiven by his own blood, if he's promised to make you look like Jesus uh, into his image, what room does doubt have in your life? If junk comes into your life and you think God is, he does not love me because of this bad stuff, then you can remind yourself that's not true. He's using it to make me look like Jesus. Listen, if he went as far as not sparing his own son, but he gave him up for all of us, why in the world would he not give us all good things? I want you to hear me this morning. Satan wants to create in you doubt in the goodness of God. He wants you to doubt him. He wants to whisper doubts into your ear that God is not in control, that God is evil. He does not care about you, but he gave us everything in Christ Jesus, his son. How could we say he doesn't care? And if he gave us his son, why, why wouldn't he also give us heaven? And if he gave us his son, why would he not give you deliverance from alcoholism or addiction? Why would he not make you look like Jesus? Why would he not provide for your every need? He gave you his son. Why would you doubt any other promise? Feed your faith with what God has done and your doubt will starve to death. Jesus' resurrection also reveals God's power over guilt. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Because Satan is gonna come to you and he's gonna say, you're a, a sinner worthy of hell. And all we have to do is say, I know. But Jesus saved me by his grace. Go tell him your accusations. And he'll say, innocent. I don't justify myself. The resurrected Christ justifies me. I can't justify myself. I can only agree that I didn't deserve it. Who's to bring a charge? Who's to bring a better argument against the one who's been pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ? When I say to myself, I don't deserve God's love, his grace, his salvation, I better quickly answer myself, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. I better quickly answer myself back. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is the power over guilt. He, we no longer are guilty, we're free. We're also no longer condemned. Who is to condemn? Verse 34, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who's going to walk into heaven and go up to the judgment seat of Christ and say, Greg is guilty. He's the chief of sinners, but only to hear back, I have pardoned him by my very own blood. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Someone's not gonna sneak into heaven while he's on a bathroom break and say, they're not worthy. He always lives to make intercession. And, and we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever enters the court of heaven to accuse you, believer, has to face the resurrected Christ who says there is no condemnation for them. Jesus' resurrection deals with your power over fear to finish up. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, 
as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who, lived, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything else in all of creation will, a- will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one separates us from that promise, not even ourselves. Nothing in all of creation separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you approach the throne and you say, Jesus, I've turned from you, I've sinned this week, I do not deserve your love. He says back, I loved you from before the foundations of the world. I loved you while you were a sinner. I came to die for you while you were a sinner. I'm standing in here as a resurrected Messiah to remind you I've paid for your sin. Repent and follow me. The resurrected Christ ensures that we are secure in his love forever. God is not good is the ancient lie of the deceiver. Desiring you to seek your own way, knowing you will end up exactly like him, destined for hell. But God in his great mercy determined a long time ago that he would enter into creation. He would live perfectly. He would die as the perfect sacrifice. He would raise from the grave in victory. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father and reign forever. That resurrected Christ is calling you this morning, calling you to turn from your sin, to follow him, to turn from what is not good and receive the good. Believer, Jesus is calling you this morning to live by faith in the resurrected Savior. He's calling you, stop playing religious games and believe that he died for you. Die to self and live for Christ. May this Easter not only be a reminder of the resurrected Christ, but the amazing work he is accomplishing to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you. Jesus, you are our king. You alone are righteous. But it pleases you to give us your righteousness. It pleases you. You you went to the cross, you looked forward to the cross knowing that you would inherit the world and your people, that you were setting them free, that you were anointed with the Spirit to proclaim freedom from captivity. Jesus, I pray that we would remember that. I pray that you would anchor that in our souls and we would live in faith because of that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.